Good morning. How are we doing, everyone? Why don't you uh, make your way in? You know, you can sit in the front, so I'm not so lonely up here. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and make your way in, and we'll get started this morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping, where we are continuing our series on biblical themes, biblical themes, sort of tracing uh, certain threads throughout the Bible, throughout the Scripture, see how they point to Jesus. And some of these titles have been a little bit misleading, like the title this morning, you know, we're talking about marriage. Um, and really, I'm not talking about marriage so much as I'm talking about Jesus, uh, talking about Jesus through the lens of marriage, how every time we see marriage show up in the Bible, you're seeing a union between a man and a woman, yes, but more so the idea of marriage is meant to direct our attention toward Jesus. When we read about a husband in the Bible serving his wife and making sacrifices to love her and provide for her, that's meant to direct our attention to Jesus, who lays down his life for his bride, the church. And so this is not going to be a marriage seminar today, okay, giving you tips to have a, a better marriage. I know that's why you showed up. You're like, please help me, Tim. But it's going to be, it's not going to be a seminar on marriage. It's not going to be a teaching limited to married people, okay? This is going to be a Jesus teaching, whether you're married, unmarried, there's no other category. <laughs> it's going to be a Jesus teaching, okay? How the Bible reveals, how does God use marriage in the Bible to reveal our need for a Savior and to point us to Jesus and to draw us to himself? So that's what we're looking at today. I'll be honest, I had a lot of trouble nailing down uh, sort of the content for this talk because marriage is almost on every page of the Bible. And so this won't be anything close to exhaustive, uh, which kind of kills me inside. It kind of pains me how much I'm not going to talk about. But if you want more resources, email me. We can always grab coffee. Uh, and I've got a, a good book recommendation on the last page of, the, of your notes. Um, I'll be referencing that book almost to sort of entice you to read it. I'll be referencing it throughout this teaching. But for today, we're going to do a big picture survey of marriage in the Bible. And we're going to really look at four sections of the Bible, four episodes, uh, and talk about how each of them point us to Jesus. And so we're going to look at the creation of marriage, the defilement of marriage, the grace of marriage, and the ultimate marriage. So everyone take a deep breath. I'm going to take a deep breath. It's the last one I'm going to get. And let's begin. Starting with the creation of marriage. The first thing we're going to see today as we consider God's creation of marriage, and actually the very impetus for a marriage's creation is this, that we are not self-sufficient. God's creation of marriage shows us that we, human beings, are not self-sufficient. We need somebody else. We need community, if you want to say it that way, because as the Bible says, it is not good for us to be alone. Marriage, right there in the first few pages of your Bible, was instituted by God to serve as a remedy for this need. And so a real quick summary of Genesis 1. First, we see God create the heavens and the earth, and then we see he creates all the stuff that fills the heavens and the earth. But then last and certainly not least, he creates mankind. But mankind is different from the other stuff and all the creatures that God has created because mankind, this creature called a human, is created, Genesis says, in the image of God. Mankind is unique. Nothing else gets that created in the image of God title. Only humans. Only humans are the image bearers 
of God, which is a title of authority and of highest honor. So similar to what the great prophet Spider-Man's uncle told us, with this great authority comes a great responsibility. So God gives mankind the responsibility of ruling over and caring for the world as God would rule over and care for the world. Man is called to, to cultivate the world in the image of God, meaning as God would cultivate the image of the or cultivate the world. Man's called to man, maintain and nurture the beauty and the harmony and flourishing of God's creation as a representative, as an extension of God's own care for his own creation. So that's what mankind is called to do, and it's quite the responsibility. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see the man, Adam, immediately getting to work. He starts naming animals. He starts getting a lay of the land where all the rivers flow. You know, that one goes that way. This river goes this way. I can eat from that tree. I can't eat from, from that one. And in the midst of this, listen to what God says about the man. He looks at the man he's made, that he's given all this responsibility and authority to. And as the man is working, God says, Genesis 2, 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So up to this point in the creation story, God has said about everything he's made, it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good. But now, as, and, and Moses is actually writing this so that you'll pay attention to this specific point. Moses writes, it is not good that the man should be alone. And that's where marriage comes from. That statement is what the institution of marriage is built on, which means that the institution of marriage proclaims from God to us that we don't have all we need in and of ourselves, that we are lacking, that we are not self-sufficient. And so God lovingly provides a remedy. God provides a remedy. And God's remedy is not what we would typically ask for. When you're at the end of what you can provide for yourself, when you're, when you're face-to-face with the limit of your capacity, if you've ever been in a season where you're like, I just can't do it, I'm at the end of my rope, I, I've reached the end of what I can do, what do you ask God for every time? Here's what you ask God for. Typically, God, make it stop or make me stronger. Make me better. If you're not going to make it stop, then make me better, make me stronger, make me more determined, make me need nothing but myself, make me self-sufficient, remove the limitations from me in this season. That's what we typically ask God for, but that's not God's remedy for Adam. And it'll never be his remedy for you, by the way, so stop asking for it. God doesn't make Adam stronger or more mentally determined God doesn't say, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'll make Adam a little bit stronger and give him a lecture how he needs to be grateful for all the other things I've given him he should be happy for. No, in fact, God doesn't add anything to Adam. God actually takes away from Adam. He takes a piece of Adam's side. God says, Adam's lacking something, so I'll remove even more from him. But in so doing, gives Adam a remedy far better than anything Adam could have had within himself. And God's remedy is a marriage. Genesis 2.18, God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. And here's the remedy. I will make him a helper fit for him. I'll provide what he lacks. I'll give him a marriage. And so we see that in verses 21 through 23. It says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, quick sidebar, 
I don't think that's the best translation, is rib. Uh, how many people learned in some Sunday school class growing up that men have one less rib than women? Not true. It's ridiculous. That's not true at all. This was just a way, because later Adam's going to say, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so people back in the day thought, what comes from your side that would be a bone and flesh? A rib, probably. But that's not what this text is referring to. It just means part of Adam's side. Don't you know, freak out over what part of Adam, what's missing. You don't have it, whatever it is, so chill out. Took one of his ribs, asterisk, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last, he says. It's like a poem. He starts singing. It's very lyrical. This always reminds me of uh, uh, the song At Last, uh, sort of made famous by Etta James. You've heard it, whether you know it or not. You know, at last, my love. I'm not going to sing it, but it's a great song. Etta James was an incredible singer uh, that's been called the matriarch of American blues, but she also, in my opinion, sings an excellent biblical interpretation and summary of this passage. And it goes like this, at last, my love has come along, my lonely days are over, and life is like a song. At last, the skies above are blue, my heart was wrapped up in clover the night I looked at you. I found a dream that I could speak to, a dream that I could call my own. I found a thrill to rest my cheek to, a thrill that I have never known. I think that's a pretty good interpretation of what Adam's saying here. God takes flesh from the man. Adam's body is broken in order to give life to his bride. Adam's body is wounded, and from that wound comes his bride. We'll hear that again. And so God walks her down the aisle. He brings her to the man, and Adam says, out of joy and love and relief, at last, I have what I was lacking. God has provided for me. I'm not alone anymore. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, flesh of my flesh, someone like me, I'm not alone. A marriage to this day is that same profession, that we are not self-sufficient, but God provides a remedy. And that's our first introduction to marriage in the Bible, and that actually causes the author of Genesis, Moses, to pause to give a more formal definition of marriage to us. Moses is like that guy you're watching a movie with who keeps pausing it to be like, here's what's going on, to explain it. That's what he does here. He stops and he says in Genesis 2.24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Moses says this because he's writing to his people who have fled the Egyptians, and they're in the desert, they're in the wilderness. And Moses says, therefore, because of this marriage that we've just witnessed, that God created, this is how marriage ought to look among us. Forget the way the Egyptians did it. Forget their thoughts on marriage. Disregard how all the nations around us that are attacking us constantly, forget how they do marriage. No, this is a marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the biblical definition of marriage. Not only does God provide a remedy to our loneliness, he, he clearly defines it for us as well. God defines 
the remedy. He draws boundaries around what a marriage actually is, lest we try to find a remedy in marriage counterfeits. It's like a recipe. If someone gives you a recipe for really good chocolate chip cookies or something, and you start swapping stuff out, putting gross stuff like pumpkin spice in it, adding your own stuff, taking the recipe, parts of the recipe out, the recipe isn't going to turn out the way it was intended. And so God defines marriage so that we might flourish within its boundaries. And this definition here shows us three things, I think. I've taken two of these ideas. I stole them straight from Tim Keller in a book he wrote called The Meaning of Marriage, and then I added my own. But this definition shows us that a marriage is a relationship of three things, priority, devotion, and intimacy. A marriage is a relationship of priority, devotion, and intimacy. So first, a marriage is a relationship of priority. Notice that the man shall leave his father and mother. He shall change up his life priorities from his family, from his home, to a new family, to a a new home. His wife becomes the new, number one priority. Marriage involves this reordering of priorities where your spouse is, wherever she is or wherever he is, that is where you call home. I remember when I was uh, at Texas A&M, or no, before I was at Texas A&M, when Kelsey and I were dating, Kelsey's my wife, uh, when we were dating way back in college, I was going to Baylor University, and she was at Texas A&M. And I was talking to this pastor friend of mine about how I would go hang out with friends, and we would do these fun things or whatever, but it was like a ceiling to my joy because I was apart from my love, you know? I was like, look at this picture. Look how they're all smiling, but their smiles are bigger than mine. You know, I'm a real artist type. I was very sad. I just like sat at a coffee shop alone like one day. I'll be with my love. But my friend told me on the phone, he said, you know what they say is true. You know, home is where the heart is. (laughs) It sounds like your heart's in College Station. And so I I got up out of Waco for more reasons than just that. Waco's a disgusting city. I got up out of there, went straight to College Station to marry my bride, My priorities changed, and I left my home, and Kelsey Lynn became my priority. No one else gets prioritized like her. A marriage relationship is one of priority. But second, it's a relationship of devotion. The man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Not only does he prioritize her, he holds fast to her, vowing to never change his priorities again. A husband or a wife's priorities ideally should only change once in life when they leave their parents' house to marry their spouse. And once they're married, there's no more leaving home. There's no more shift in priorities. They become devoted to each other. So this phrase, hold fast, elsewhere in the scriptures, it actually refers to a blacksmith soldering two metals together. And so a marriage is a commitment, a devotion to love and to cherish and to, to not let go. It's a devotion like no other. Like we say in weddings, in sickness and in health, no matter the circumstances, I will hold fast to you. Like a strong weld, I won't let go. And so marriage is a relationship of priority. Marriage is a relationship of devotion. And lastly, marriage is a relationship of intimacy. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage is a relationship of intimacy. The Bible uses language like knowing 
to describe the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. No one knows you like your spouse. Not your family, not your friends, not even yourself. Okay, go, go take a personality test. Answer questions like, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to freak out if things don't go your way? You'd be like, I'm, pre- I'm a pretty chill person, probably four or five, maybe, maybe a six if it's been a rough week. Then go ask your wife to fill out that test on your behalf. She'll be like, 10, this dude is crazy. Who do you think will give a more accurate picture of what you're really like? You may not like it, but that sort of knowledge is only accessible in a one flesh union, in a marriage. It is a relationship of intimacy, of of nakedness before one another, where you can't hide behind all the fake stuff that you say around everyone else. So marriage is a relationship of intimacy, where nothing is covered up before each other. And even the ugly stuff that you hate for others to see, your spouse sees and continues to devote themselves to you and prioritize you above all others, ugly stuff and all. That's the ideal. That's the definition of marriage that God gives us so that we might cultivate our marriages and cultivate this remedy for our insufficiency. But as we're about to see, humanity, rather than cultivating the gift of, uh, the gift of marriage that God has given or upholding marriage as defined by God, marriage is defiled at the hands of sinful, self-serving, self-trusting humans. Ray Ortland whose book I referenced at the beginning, writes, as the biblical narrative continues, the story of marriage reflects that of human sinfulness. The institution can only be as beautiful as human moral character allows. Which brings us to the defilement of marriage. I hope this isn't news to you, but where we left, Adam and Eve, you know, Adam singing, Etta James, and they're running around naked, that doesn't last very long. Because in the garden, they reject God. They reject his way. They try to do things their own way, assert their own authority, and as a result, their marriage suffers. Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God says, as a result of your sin, Eve's desires will be different from her husband's. She'll reject his leadership. She'll she'll seek to go her own way. Her priority will not be her husband, but rather her own desires. And she won't devote herself to her husband. She'll have other devotions contrary to her husband. And then he, on the other side, he'll be domineering. He won't prioritize his wife's concerns, but rather will prioritize his own ambition. He won't be a humble and patient husband. He'll be angry and impatient and resentful, and he'll lead without compassion. And so stop and notice our marriage relationships with one another are connected to our marriage relationship to God. They are connected. Do you think that your marriage is going to be healthy or you're going to have a healthy view of marriage while living in active rebellion to God? God, who's the very source of marriage, the the wellspring, the fountain of marriage. No, your marriage will always be as healthy as your relationship with God. When you cut off the fountain, your marriage will inevitably wither. Ray Ortland again writes, nothing is more natural in our fallen world today than trying to build a happy marriage on a foundation of God avoidance, but it cannot work. 
Without peace with God, we inevitably shatter the peace we desire with one another. Your marriage relationship is connected to your marriage relationship with God. When one goes down, so does the other. And that's exactly what we see immediately set in after mankind's rebellion in the garden. Now, I could, I could cover literally, I think literally hundreds, certainly many tens of examples, but I'm going to limit myself to four examples from the Old Testament where mankind's defiling the gift of marriage. And here's what these examples are going to show us again and again and again, that we are chronically self-serving. It's a disease. We're chronically self-serving and self-trusting. We're chronically self-serving and self-trusting. Humans prioritize themselves, devote themselves to their whims and desires, and men and women begin to care less and less about knowing their spouse and more about others knowing their name, building a name for themselves because we are chronically self-serving and also we're self-trusting. We reject God's provision for what we need. We decide to make our own way, provide for ourselves, create our own definitions of marriage. And the self-serving and self-trusting nature wreaks havoc on marriages. So look first at the story of Lamech. Lamech, <clears throat> he was a descendant of Cain. Cain, if you don't know who Cain is, Cain uh, was Adam and Eve's firstborn son. And Cain is the one who murdered their younger son, Abel. And so when you hear Cain, you should think, hmm, not great. So now look at 4.17, Genesis 4.17 through 19a. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of that city after the name of his son, Enoch. And to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. There's a red flag. The author mentions it explicitly. He goes, look at, look at this guy. Instead of holding fast to his wife and devoting himself to her, he takes two wives, splits his devotion, splits his priority, splits his intimacy. He's the first one to do this in the Bible, and it is not presented as a good thing. So if, if you think that somehow the Bible supports polygamy because it mentions people with multiple wives, just read what happens time and time again to those people. The scriptures, they never speak highly of the decision to take multiple wives it always goes poorly. And so listen to how Lamech is portrayed. Verse 23, Genesis 4, 23. Lamech said to his wives, he just keeps saying over and over again, plural. Look at this guy, wives, wives. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. What he's doing there is boasting of injustice. Someone wounds me, I kill him. That's, that's me. Yeah. He's boasting of injustice, of, of murder. And he says that whatever Cain was like, I'm 77 times more than that. Lamech is chronically self-serving. And his relationship to his wife, or at least his, his first wife, and his refusal to hold fast to her and her alone is a reflection of his similar unfaithfulness to his relationship to God. Next, look at Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 12, God makes his covenant with a man named Abram, or as he's later named, Abraham. We talked a little bit about that a couple weeks ago in our covenants talk. 
And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, one day are, are hanging out. But then there's a severe famine in their land. And so severe that Abraham decides to pack up his, his home and everybody, and they go down to Egypt, where the famine is considered to be a little less severe. But listen to what kind of husband Abraham is to his wife. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, this is Genesis 12, 10 through 20. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman, or you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. <laughs> when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. That means he made her his wife. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, <clears throat> and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abraham, prostituting out his wife to get some camels and to spare his life. Who is Abraham's priority? Himself. Does he hold fast to his wife? No, he, he gives her up to preserve his own life and he defiles the intimacy of his marriage by allowing another man to know the wife given by God for only Abraham to know, just to save his own skin. And what's amazing is the pagans, the idol-worshiping Egyptians, they condemn Abraham. They're the ones that say, what, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? Just say she's your wife. That's crazy. Why would you do this? But thankfully, Abraham learned from this experience. He never pulled a stunt like that again. No, he did it again. He did the exact same thing with Sarah in Genesis 20 in a different country with a different king. And things just got worse from there. Abraham and Sarah, they don't want to wait on God to provide a child. God promises to them, I'm going to provide you a child. They're like, no way. And they laugh and they're like, huh, we laugh. That's a great name for a kid. And he says, I'm going to give you a kid. They don't want to wait on that. And so Abraham sleeps with their servant, Hagar. So yeah, Abraham gives Sarah to any king who asks for her. And then Sarah gives Abraham to her servant, Hagar. And so Abraham and Sarah's marriage is a mess. And it shows us how diseased we really are, how chronically self-serving and self-trusting we are. These just get better, okay? Next one up. This is another lovely story in your Bible. The Bible's full of amazing lovely stories. Abraham has a nephew named Lot, okay? Remember his wife's the pillar of salt lady? Okay, so his wife's out of the picture, and Lot has a couple of daughters. So buckle up for some defilement. Genesis 19, 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine 
and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went and lay with her father. And this is Lot's innocence here. He didn't know. He didn't know when she lay down or when she arose because he was passed out drunk. Verse 34, the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So notice things getting worse and worse. Mankind getting worse and worse. Their treatment of marriage getting more and more twisted. And notice mankind's relationship to God always reflecting, correlating with their treatment of marriage. One last marriage story from another hero of the Bible. This is one that we all know, King David and Bathsheba. David sees the wife of his comrade, of his friend, bathing on her rooftop. And now David already has several wives. Again, that's a red flag. But surprise, surprise, he still desires more. He's still not satisfied. He still feels alone. And he desires his friend's wife, Bathsheba. And so he takes her into his house, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband killed to cover it up. So I know that this is a room full of sinners. I know everybody in here is a room full of sinners, but I'm quite sure that that few to none of you have stolen someone else's spouse and had them killed to cover it up. Show of hands? Yeah. These are extreme stories of brokenness. The defilement of marriage, too, is extreme, and yet they all share this thread that if you're an honest person, you'll actually be able to relate to them. All these people in these stories share with us this disease. We are hell-bent on serving ourselves and trusting ourselves. We're devoted to prioritizing our desires, devoting ourselves to momentary wants that will never satisfy us, and trusting in ourselves to cover over our own shame. We do this all all the time, bending over backwards to keep everyone from finding out about our Brokenness, given no one but ourselves the authority to drag our sin out into the light. We are self-serving. This self-serving and self-trusting disease is what plagues all of us and what plagues every marriage in the Bible. But here's what's remarkable. Though we defile our marriage relationships between one another and we defile our marriage relationship to God, God sustains the institution of marriage by grace. God continues to use marriage to provide what we're lacking. We still find companionship and love and and good things in the context of a marriage, even a marriage consisting of two sinners, two broken people. And that is the grace of marriage, which is our next section. Though we reject God and his remedy for mankind's insufficiency and his definition of marriage, and though we are chronically self-serving and we trust in ourselves for provision, God still steps in to provide what we lack, to provide a remedy. God still provides what we lack, and specifically in marriage. He provides us with two things, the gift of companionship and the gift of sanctification. 
the gift of companionship and the gift of sanctification. So the first one, the gift of companionship. When mankind sinned, God cast them out of the garden, but he cast them out together. Whether pre-fall or post-fall, God still affirms we need one another. We need companionship. It's not good for man to be alone, sinful or not. And so the institution of marriage serves as this pillar of common grace to all of mankind. It's a covenant of companionship where two people commit to be one another's other. Even unbelievers have marriages that are encouraging and supportive and loving, which are all gracious gifts from God. And so Proverbs will say about a man who finds an excellent wife, an excellent wife, who can find? Proverbs 31, 10 through 12, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. It's God's grace to find a companion, just like he provided a companion for Adam. And God provides that despite our sinfulness in the context of marriage. But God also graciously provides the gift of sanctification. And I'm going to spend a lot of time on this one. Sanctification is the idea of God making us more like him in righteousness and holiness so that we image him. Remember this call in the garden to image God? Sanctification is him crafting us, forming us to image him more accurately so that we will cultivate the world around us in a manner like God. We cultivate it in the manner in which God would cultivate it. This process of God forming us into his image is called sanctification. And within the context of a marriage, God makes the husband and the wife more and more like himself. And an excellent, albeit extreme, example of this sort of sanctification provided through marriage comes in the book of Hosea. If you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, it's actually my favorite book in the Bible. So for that reason alone, you should become familiar with it. The book of Hosea is a very strange and profound book because this prophet, Hosea, is commanded by God to marry this woman who's described as an adulterous woman. And the reason God tells Hosea to do this is so he can pronounce judgment over Israel for forsaking the Lord. And so God says, I want you to take a wife who's going to cheat on you again and again and again and again, and I want, you to, I want you to leave your father and mother and hold fast to her. Meanwhile, she's going to be sacrificing nothing for you, but instead constantly chasing after other lovers. God says, my paraphrase, because that's what it's like to be Israel's God. And so Hosea does that. He marries a woman named Gomer, and despite his devotion to her, she is chronically self-serving and self-trusting. And she pursues other lovers. And she devotes herself to just about anyone but her husband, Hosea. And at one point in the, in the story, in chapter 3, we find her at an extremely low spot because she's actually up for sale. She's like in the public market for sale. And Hosea doesn't want to tell us, or he doesn't, not that he doesn't want to, he just doesn't tell us how this came to be. Maybe she incurred some sort of debt that she had to pay. Maybe she's a prostitute and she's tired of the, the hourly gig, so she wants a more salaried position. She's like, you can, have, you can have all of this. Maybe she's too ashamed to return to her home with Hosea, and so she's just trying to sell herself to anybody who will buy her so she can get a roof over her head. We don't know, but regardless, it's a point of desperation. 
She's at the end of her rope. She's realized that she is not sufficient, and yet she's still trying to be. And God tells Hosea, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man as an adulteress. And in this point, God's pointing to Gomer. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. God says, go and buy your wife. Take again your adulterous wife and give yourself to her fully, just like God loves and gives himself to the children of Israel despite their self-serving unfaithfulness. Now, for some reason, when we read this, we remove from Hosea his heart and his humanity, as if he's not been severely wounded by his wife and her adultery. We, we, this just becomes a Bible story. And we go, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, Hosea goes and buys her back. Of course. But that's not an of course sort of situation. Okay, it, w- it wouldn't be for you, trust me. I've counseled so many couples when there's been adultery in their marriage, and I've never heard anything close to someone saying, oh, of course, of course, everything's fine. It's all forgiven. Oh, of course, piece of cake. I don't feel like I'm owed anything. In fact, I'll, I'll pay the huge price in continuing this relationship. No problem. No one says that, at least not at first. It certainly takes time. But Hosea has entered into a marriage covenant with Gomer, And it's pretty clear that he loves her. The time he has spent pursuing her and pursuing her while she betrays him and betrays him, he's developed a deep love for his bride, compassion for his wife. How do we know that? Because when God told Jonah to redeem the people of Nineveh, what did he do? He ran away. He ran away. He wouldn't do it because he had no love, no compassion for them. That's what he lacked. But through Hosea and Gomer's marriage, broken as it is, God has made Hosea into a compassionate and loving husband. He's made Hosea like himself. God called Hosea to pronounce judgment over Israel. But when do you think it was that that Hosea gained compassion for the people he was pronouncing judgment on? Was it before he married Gomer or after he had experienced years of her adultery? So you see, God uses marriage to sanctify Hosea, form him into the image of God. God refined Hosea over those years of pain into a compassionate and loving husband, a forgiving husband, a long-suffering husband. And what a blessing Gomer receives from God. As you continue reading Hosea, you see that Hosea goes and he does. He buys his wife. He redeems her. He affirms his commitment to her, tells her that her home is with him. He says, you will dwell with me. And there's this beautiful line that's really poetic. The Hebrew language is really poetic and can be difficult to translate sometimes. But Hosea basically says, Gomer, you're going to dwell with me and I'm going to be yours. He doesn't say, you're mine. You're going to dwell with me. You're my property. He says, I'm, you're going to dwell with me and everything I am is yours. Hosea would have never been so loving, so forgiving, so compassionate were it not for the work of sanctification, the gift of sanctification wrought through the gift of marriage. And that's true for your marriage as well. Every annoyance, every argument, every betrayal, every frustration, and yet God calls you to continue to devote yourself to this person. He's making you like himself. 
He is building in you compassion and love for your spouse that reflects the compassion and love that he has for you. So what hurt are you walking through right now, especially those who are married? Where has your spouse failed you? Where have people failed you? You can grow in bitterness, sure. You can grow in self-righteousness, grow in your confidence. Oh yeah, you're not the one that has a problem. They're the one with a problem. Or you can image God. You can cultivate your relationship with your spouse in the manner in which God cultivates his relationship with us. It's tempting when you read the book of Hosea to marvel over Hosea's love, sacrificial love and patience and forgiveness of Gomer, but that would miss the entire point of Hosea. The book of Hosea is not about a remarkable love between a man and a woman. Rather, the focus of Hosea's marriage and Hosea's unwavering covenant with Gomer is this. Our God makes an unwavering covenant with us. He redeems us. He affirms his commitment to us and says to us, you will dwell with me, my beloved, and I will be, everything I am will be yours. I'll be all yours. That brings us to our final chapter, which is what marriage from the beginning has been truly about all along, the ultimate marriage. Marriage is not ultimately about the love between a man and a woman. Marriage is not ultimately about sex or providing offspring or combining incomes for a better tax return or anything like that. Rather, marriage is ultimately about the relationship between God and his people. The eternal marriage God establishes with his people because it's not good for us to be alone. We're not self-sufficient. Spiritually, we're not self-sufficient. We need a remedy and we need a marriage where Jesus is our true and better bridegroom and our God will make his home with us forever. So first, let's talk about Jesus. Jesus is the true and better husband. Jesus is this, this, the result of this gift of marriage and he's the fulfillment of the gift of marriage. Fun fact, Lamech, remember Lamech from earlier? He had a son named Noah. Remember Noah? And then Noah, he has sons, we have sons, we have sons, and eventually that leads to Abraham. And Abraham and his wife Sarah, they get together. And eventually they have a son named Boaz. And you remember Abraham's nephew with his weird daughters? They have a kid named Moab who gives birth to the Moabites. And you have... Out of the Moabites comes this woman named Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz, they get together. And Ruth and Boaz, they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, King David. And all the way down from David and on, beginning with David's son, Nathan. David's son, Nathan, is Joseph's side. And uh, I think Solomon is Mary's side. That may be switched or reversed. We get Jesus. God works through the defilement. He's gracious in the defilement to provide Jesus the true and better husband. And look at what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Listen to what Paul says. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He quotes the foundational definition of marriage and says, 
This refers to Christ and the church. All along, this is what our human marriages have been pointing to, a marriage between Christ and his church. That's what Genesis 2 was referring to, a marriage of priority, devotion, and intimacy, not simply between a husband and a wife, but between God and his people. Because Jesus prioritized us by leaving his home. He left the dwelling place of his father to come to us, and he took on flesh. The eternal son of God took on flesh so that he can say to us, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, you're like me. Because Jesus devoted himself to his church, devoted himself all the way to the cross. He lays down his life, sacrifices his life for his bride, for you. If you want to know Jesus' devotion to his bride, just look at the cross. And he holds us fast. He devotes himself to us so that nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It'll sound like wedding vows in sickness and in health, in poverty and wealth. In all circumstances, Jesus holds fast to us. And he knows us intimately. There's an intimacy in our marriage. It is his spirit that dwells within us and keeps us. And he knows our every failing, our every sin, and all of our unrighteousness. But he calls us beloved. He draws near to us so that we could stand with confidence before him, covered by his grace, naked and unashamed. Ray Ortland, again writing about Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, says... The Son of God stepping out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride as his very heart and body with his inmost sincerest love so that he can fit her to be with him forever above. That dramatic super reality is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. We should not think that Christ and the church are the metaphor in Ephesians, but the reverse Christ and the church are the reality of realities, and our Christian marriages are the metaphors. Jesus is the true and better husband, and much like Hosea and Gomer, he graciously came and bought us back to himself. When we were ruined by our sin, he came and redeemed us and called us his own. He purchased us through his death. That was the dowry price. Death was the price that Jesus paid to betroth himself to us, and he's paid it fully. And with his resurrection from the dead comes the promise that one day we'll be raised in the same way. And this will be the wedding feast, the marriage supper of Christ and his bride. That's what we are anxiously awaiting. So if you remember from a couple weeks ago from Carl's sermon in Matthew 9, Jesus is asked why he and his disciples are not fasting on a particular day when the Pharisees and John's (laughs) disciples are fasting. And Jesus says, Matthew 9, 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the messianic bridegroom. I'm the husband. 
I'm the true and better Hosea who's come to redeem my bride. So my wedding guests, they're here rejoicing, but there will come a time when I'm taking away from them. Then they will fast and mourn. And that's where we find ourselves today, longing for this ultimate marriage where Jesus, our bridegroom, will return and our longing will be satisfied, where God will come and will establish an eternal marriage covenant with us where we will be his forever and he will be ours. That's what the entire book of Revelation is pointing to, this marriage ceremony where Christ and his bride are eternally united, what John calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Revelation 21, two through four, this is when Jesus returns. John says, and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so the Bible begins with a marriage and the Bible ends with a marriage. But the one it ends with blows the, the first out of the water. And we anxiously await that day. In the meantime, there's, we, we look to this future where there's no longer this need for marriage. Marriage is, is this temporary thing given to us, this gift to provide our need because we're so insufficient. And yet God will fulfill all of that unite us to himself eternally where we need nothing but him. There's no need for anything. There's not even need for light because we will have him forever. There's a lot more I'd love to say, but I want to get some questions. Uh, and so I'll just pray. And hopefully you've sent in some, some questions that are profound and thought-provoking. God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the gift of your son, the true bridegroom, we thank you that you work through unfaithful people, that you give yourself to unfaithful people, and you sanctify us. You make us faithful by your spirit and by your grace. I pray that you would, uh, you would refine us. You would form us into the image of Christ. We, you would make us more like you. You would make us humble. You would make us uh, appreciative that we would rejoice not in our good deeds and the way we've changed our life, but rather and the gift of Christ. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.